The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and find your way back to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We have made our way to chapter 5 and come to this, this section pretty quickly, honestly. Um, let me just tell you that in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're going to slow down significantly. There's a sense in which chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Deuteronomy may be the most important of all the chapters and lay the foundation for the rest of the sermons that Moses is giving. Remember, this is a series of sermons, Deuteronomy is, the second law, it's not a different law, it's the second time Moses gives the law on the plains of Moab to the children of Israel, the new generation who has not died with the previous generation, they're about to enter, cross the Jordan, enter into the promised land, and it's his swan song, it's his farewell speech, it's his reiteration of the law. But this time, he doesn't just reiterate it, he preaches through it. He gives a lot of commentary and, and writers, as you would have in a contract, uh, more explanation as you go through. That's certainly the case in what we're going to see in the coming months in this section in Deuteronomy 5. We're going to look at the 10 words of Moses, the 10 commandments. When you read the 10 commandments in Exodus 20 and you read the 10 commandments in Deuteronomy 5, you'll notice massive similarities and significant differences. And the reason is, now that Moses has had the better part of four decades to teach the people what this is, he's giving explanation notes. This is almost his study Bible, as it were, as he moves through these these sections of reiterating the law. Let's just read for a moment these first few verses in Deuteronomy 5, and then we're going to jump back to Exodus chapter 19. Remember, he's standing, looking at the people who are on the banks of the Jordan, about to cross over. Then Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I'm speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. Stop right there from it. The statutes and ordinances, these are both the, the explanations of what was expected, the prohibition against that which was forbidden, and also the, uh, the parts that would make them distinct as a nation in the midst of paganism uh, walking into Canaan. There's a great progression here. Uh, they're, 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 Moses is speaking, they're hearing, they're learning, they're observing very carefully. You hear You learn, you observe. There's a progression of obedience in verse 1. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us and with all those of us alive here today. What he's saying there is that God brought this generation and the generation's children and grandchildren out of Egypt. This didn't happen 100 years ago or 400 years ago. This happened with us and for us. The Lord spoke to you in the face, spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, then he iterates the 10 words of Moses. To really understand this, you have to go back now, take your Bibles and go back to Exodus chapter 19. 
While you're turning there, if you know me at all or very well, you will probably find out pretty quickly I'm just not a movie guy. It's not a big legalistic conviction. I just I get really bored with movies really, really quickly. Um, if you talk to my wife, uh, we'll watch some movie, and she'll say, how'd you like it? And it's almost 100%. I'll say it was pretty slow. I tend to, I have this, it's hard for me to get beyond the fact that these people are pretending. Um, it's, I know I can't suspend disbelief or suspend belief very easily. It's, it's, it's a wrong-headed thinking. I'm not bragging about it. I need help with that. Um, two movies, though, however, are significant for us to at least reference tonight. And they're significant to reference because they've given a pop culture understanding of Moses and a pop culture understanding of the Ten Commandments that has forever, I think, changed the shape and the understanding of what happened at Horeb and what happened in the Ten Commandments. These two movies in particular deal with the commandments themselves in a major way. The first was Obvious to all of you, Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. It was released in 1956 with a running time of 220 minutes. If you haven't seen it, you haven't lived. And if you've seen it all, good for you. Well, the movie's really become a classic. It's usually known, uh, shown annually around Easter time. Why around Easter time? Because it covers the Passover, which is chronicled during part of that movie. It commemorates, it recounts the historical events surrounding the Passover for the Jews. As Christians, we obviously connect the Passover to the Lord's death. He is our new Passover. So there is some Christian connection there. But I, I, I've seen it a number of times. I actually like that movie. It's hard for me to think of Moses without thinking of Charlton Heston. As much as I try, when I think Moses, Charlton's right there in my mind. The second film that sheds an interesting perspective on the study we're going to do over the next few months in the Ten Commandments is, strangely enough, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the reason is that Lost Ark has a significant bearing on the Ten Commandments. That was ultimately where the Ark, uh, the Ark was ultimately where the Ten Commandment tablets were housed. And this movie actually uh, portrayed a view of those commandments and a view of the Ark that, uh, that's actually got a little bit of a cult following in scholarly realms, and it reflects some ideology of some folks who think that the ark was actually uh, buried somewhere in Egypt. Moses was instructed to have this ark or box built to contain other items. The ca- tablets were among them, um, and they were written and put in there. There's no biblical record, by the way, regarding the final whereabouts of this golden box, the Ark of the Covenant. But the release of the Indiana Jones movie elevated the subject from biblical scholarship to popular opinion. Um, Gary Byers, who's a uh, writer on this subject of scholarship, uh, writes this. And I think this is interesting just to put this in perspective about the Ark of the Covenant. He writes, and I'm going to quote a section from, from an article he wrote. He says, long pondered by the community of biblical scholarship, the rest of the world began considering the question of the whereabouts of the Ark of the Covenant with the release of the hit motion picture, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Today, there are no lack of possibilities. Based on ancient Jewish writings, some have suggested that the Ark is hidden on Mount Nebo on the Jordan River's east bank. This site is presently in the modern nation of Jordan with no hint of the Ark's presence. Others suggest that the Ark is hidden somewhere near the Dead Sea on the Jordan's west bank. 
This location is usually considered in association with the ancient site of Qumran and the people of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here, the ark and other artifacts are believed to be buried in one of that region's uh, large caves, just like the Dead Sea Scrolls were. He goes on. Another view suggests that the ark is located beneath Jerusalem. I actually uh, was in Jerusalem a couple years ago and talked to some people who are a part of a society who believe this. Some even say they've seen it. Not so sure about that. Some say it's beneath uh, the suggested site of the crucifixion, Gordon's Calvary. The temple institute in Jerusalem's old city, the ultra-Orthodox organization dedicated to rebuilding the Jewish temple, says the ark is under the temple mount and will be revealed at the proper time when the temple is rebuilt. Interestingly, the thesis of the Raiders of the Lost Ark is that the ark was taken from the temple by an Egyptian pharaoh, uh, and it's not a very popular view today among true scholars. It may be due to the lack of uh, tradition suggesting the ark's presence in the mouth of, at the mouth of the Nile in Lower Egypt. A view which has received little attention until the past decade has now been popularized by a recent book, uh, The Sign and the Seal, The Quest for the Lost Ark of the Covenant by British journalist Graham Hancock has almost reached bestseller status and captured the imagination of the general public. According to this view, the Ark of the Covenant was taken from ancient Jerusalem in the days of King Solomon. While there was numerous variations of the story, the common thread centers on the son fathered by Israelite uh, King Solomon and, and born to the Queen of Sheba. While this union was not mentioned in the biblical account, uh, the meeting between these two monarchs is, 1 Kings 10, it's been a long tradition in Ethiopia suggested to be, had, suggesting the location of the ancient Sheba. In other words, it was taken back to Africa. He outlines about four other theories. The point of me reading that to you is that there is no end to the fascination of where in the world is this Ark of the Covenant. Is it still in existence? And even more so... If it is, what does it mean? If it exists, does it really have the power, if you close your eyes and don't look at it, to protect you from God? That was certainly popularized in the movie. What the movie did, though, is it brought back attention to this ark. And what's inside the ark is of utmost importance. And now we're backing into what's into the ark, which is predominantly the Ten Commandments, the tablets which contain the Ten Commandments. Now, by now, you might be saying, what's the point of all this? What I find amazing between these two classic movies and their unprecedented popularity is that largely the content of the Ten Commandments has been lost in the glamorization of the Ten Commandments themselves. I wonder how many of you are to ask you to take a piece of paper and a pencil could list all of the Ten Commandments in order. I wonder if you could list five of them. I wonder if you could say which ones apply to God and which ones apply to men. The Ten Commandments seem to draw an unusual affection and defensiveness, especially among believers. Now, the story I'm about to tell you could get me in a little hot water, but that's okay. I hope. A few years ago, 
there were two court cases, one in Mississippi, one in Alabama. Both of those court cases involved a group of people who wanted to remove the listed Ten Commandments from the state legislation or the courthouse, the Supreme Court buildings in those two states. In both cases, um, the side wanting to keep the Ten Commandments in the building lost. There was enormous millions and millions of dollars spent to keep the Ten Commandments in there. Now, my question is, is that right or wrong? Should, should that be the passion of Christians to get the Ten Commandments in the state legislature, in, state legislature in, in places of, of uh, court hearings? Well, before you decide or say, uh, state an opinion, let's go one more. There was a school after this that had the Ten Commandments listed in a classroom. The school was adjacent and shared a, a, a school property line with, the, um, uh, with a local church. It was uh, decided after the court cases that the Ten Commandments would not only be taken out of the public um, courts, but they would also be taken out of the public schools because they wanted a separation of church and state. So what the church did, very cleverly, is the church, which shared a border with the, uh, the local school, a local elementary school that took the Ten Commandments out, decided to put up, put up a giant billboard with the Ten Commandments facing the school. And so many people applauded it and said, what a great idea. Can I just suggest that that was a great idea, but it shouldn't have been facing the school. It should have been facing the people who actually had the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit to obey in the heart such commandments. I'd ask you this too. Those who fight so strongly and have such a strong opinion that the Ten Commandments should be listed in public, are they listed in your house? Are they where you can see them regularly? Let me ask another question. Do they even matter anymore? I heard someone tell me one time, look, the Ten Commandments are absolutely irrelevant to our generation. They passed away with the law, which is a problem as we've talked about in previous weeks. Did the law really pass away? Are the Ten Commandments obsolete? Do they have any bearing on a Christian? We're going to study that over the coming weeks. If I didn't think they did, we probably wouldn't be studying the book of Deuteronomy, by the way. I just think it's interesting to personalize this. Some people get so animated about wanting the Ten Commandments to be all sorts of places. My question is, is it in your heart? Is it on your lips? Can you list them, recite them? Are they listed in your home? So before we go fighting battles in the legislature, let's ask if they're important enough to even be listed and talked about in our own homes. Well, as we come to Exodus chapter 19, we find Moses was returning home. His life is easily broken down into three segments of 40 years each. The first 40 were spent in Egypt, second 40 in the Sinai Desert, and the third 40 bringing the people uh, to Sinai and, and then the edge of the promised land before he was taken up and um, went to be with the Lord and buried by an angel. So when you come to Exodus 19, Moses is there with the delivered sons of Israel out Mount Sinai. Now this must have been very familiar territory to Moses. He knew it well. He had already met with God on that mountain. But what was about to happen would change him and the people of God, and frankly, you and me forever. 
For tonight, I want to give the essential background for understanding the Ten Commandments that were taught here in Exodus 20 and then reiterated in Deuteronomy 5. So we won't even get to the first one today, but we have to have the background. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so 12 weeks after they leave, on that very day when they came into the wilderness of Sinai, When they set out from uh, Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Remember, it's been 12 weeks since the exit from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Uh, A little less than that, God parted the Red Sea. They go across. This mass of people have now made their way to Mount Sinai where God had met with Moses before. Verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptian and how, Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That is critical language. It wasn't just the exodus out of Egypt. It was a reception out of Egypt into the bosom of Yahweh, into God. This is precious territory for the Jews. It's a beautiful metaphor about God's care for his people. There's been much speculation regarding uh, the the, the bird in this verse, the, the eagle in this verse. It was either a golden eagle or a griffin vulture, by the way. The two are difficult to distinguish in flight, but both are beautiful gliding birds of prey that demonstrated victory over the wind. This metaphor is talking about God's protection, God's provision, God's strength, God's beauty. Verse 5. Now then, if you indeed obey my voice, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. Just stop right there. That, and we talk about these times, that is an underlinable concept in your Bible. It's an if-then clause, isn't it? If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Paul's going to talk about in Romans 9, not all Israel was Israel. Why? Because they didn't all obey. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Here, for the first time, we find conditions put on the people, this if-then formula. This is the purpose of the covenant that God is making with Israel. Two things stand out, by the way, the necessity of obedience and the privilege of representation. If you obey me, you'll represent me. You will be my envoy. You will be my representatives to the pagan nations. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Just just remember that little phrase when you read through the book of Exodus. Just amazing how quickly they said, Everything God has spoken, we will do. It just reminds me of going to camp, going to a conference, Ah, oh, everything you want me to do, Lord, I will do it. These are the same people who are going to rebel against Moses. These are the same people who are going to make a golden cow. All the people said, 
all the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. He told God that. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. This is getting into some strange phenomenon. God is going to speak to Moses in a thick, thunderous cloud, and the people are going to perceive the voice of God. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. How would he do that, by the way? How is God representing himself during this time? During the day, a pillar of cloud. During the fire, a pillar of, uh, during the night, a pillar of fire. Verse 12, and you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up the mountain or touch the border of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be surely stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. There's a very different word in the Hebrew, come up on the mountain and come up to the mountain. There's a border. They were supposed to come up and watch the phenomenon, but not to exceed beyond that. Their curiosity was to be checked by holiness. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. They washed their garments, and he said to them, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. That is such a weak translation of the Hebrew word. It means they shook because they were afraid they were going to die. Verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in, in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. By the way, why would God descend in smoke and in cloud? He'll tell us in, actually in 33 and 34, no man can see God and live. He protected them from the side of himself. And his smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. Can you see the phenomenon here? Every sense was rattled because of the greatness of God. Sound and sight and smell. Every sense. They felt the, the presence of God and they were afraid. And you know what? If you and I had been there, we would have been afraid too. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered with him with thunder. What did the people hear? You ever been so close to thunder that it just made your internal organs vibrate? That's what's happening here. Rattling thunder. 
And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord. And many of them perish. Even in their terror, they just, it's like driving by an accident. You don't want to look, but you really kind of do. Also, let all the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. They need to approach me holy, as we'll see uh, Nadab and Abihu illustrate later. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds on the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the setting. People are gathered around the mountain to meet their God. That was the invitation. Moses is called up to receive instruction from God. Then you come to chapter 20, and you have to take a step back and say, what is really going on here? This is, this is new territory. Remember we learned this morning that the, the conscience is, is actually the receptacle, it's actually the, the container of the law of God, at least in terms of knowing right and wrong? Remember, this generation had very vague notions about what God expected. Basically, the most they had was their conscience and their teachers. At this point, they had very little instruction from the Lord. God says, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to tell you what I expect from you. Remember a few weeks ago we read that prayer, that ancient Near Eastern prayer where the, the, the guy is saying, oh God who I know or do not know, oh God is who I know or do not know, let me not do this to offend you, make sure I do this, that it will please you over and over. Never knowing what God expects, God tells the people, I'm going to tell you who I am. He already told them their name, his name. And I'm going to explain to you exactly what I expect. These people relished and loved that reality for the rest of their days, and it only puts another burden of responsibility and, and thankfulness on you and me that we hold the whole word of God. We know everything God expects, and those to whom much is given, much is required. There's an analogy here going on, by the way, that will go on throughout the rest of the Old Testament and be, uh, have fruition in the New Testament. It's that, that's of salvation. The exodus is God saving the nation out of Egypt. That becomes a, a metaphor and an analogy of what God will do to save the people from their sins in the Old Testament. And it becomes an analogy and a metaphor for the New Testament salvation. Um, uh, an analogy is different than an allegory, right? You understand the difference. An allegory is something that that, that, that has double and hidden meanings. That, that's not what's going on here. This is an, an analogy, not, not an allegory. An analogy just says, this is an example. This is a metaphor. This is a type of what's happening. He brought them out, not just from Egypt, but this is critical, as we said earlier. He brought them out to meet God. Salvation is not just 
metaphorically in the Old Testament here, and even uh, realistically in a New Testament Christian's life, salvation is not just salvation from sin. Salvation is an entrance into a relationship for us with the living, risen Savior. We can't look at salvation as just what we're saved from, but who we're saved for. Now, I want to look uh, just ever so briefly at these, these opening words of chapter 20. In verses 1 to 3, Moses records a blueprint that will serve as a timeless pattern for God's exclusive plan of salvation. There are three elements, belief, repentance, and submission. Just very briefly, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Belief. You have to honor the authority of God. That's basic, fundamental, foundational principle for anyone who would ever know God in any generation. You have to believe. It's a life of faith. Orthodox Jews, by the way, ascribe so much value to the words of the prologue to the Ten Commandments here in Exodus 20 that they make them the first commandment. If you've ever seen a Jewish listing of the Ten Commandments, it's different than ours. And that's because they put so much reference on on this command to believe that they actually make this one their first commandment. God, he makes himself known through his name. And the prologue serves to connect the ten words to God's name. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. We found that back in Exodus chapter 3, right? What's your name, God? I'm going to go back to the people, Moses said. They want to know your name. Why would he ask that question? Isn't that an odd question? He meets with God. He's he's consecrated. He's told he's going to go and deliver the people. And as he's leaving, Moses says, by the way, what's your name? Doesn't that strike you as a bit odd? Think of where Moses had been for the first 40 years in Egypt where there were multiple gods known by multiple gods. Names. So God says, I'll tell you my name. It might surprise you. My name is this, Yahweh. I am who I am. The eternal I am. The eternal source. The eternal present tense. Wasn't a proper name Moses had ever heard. But that would be the signature of the Jews' understanding of the greatness of God. In fact, there's a lot of history behind that name. They would would go to such lengths to honor that name, they wouldn't even pronounce it. And they they came up with this name, Jehovah. You've heard that? Where they took the vowels from a different name for God, Adonai, and put those vowels on Yod-Heh, Wal-Heh, and made this, this new word, Jehovah. I'm not a big fan of the word Jehovah because it's a it's a contrivance. It's Yahweh. That's as close as we can come because there are no vowel pointings in the, it's called the ineffable tetragrammaton, the unspeakable four letters. Yod, Hebrew letters. Yod, hey, vowel, hey. Means I am. I am who I am. He comes back. What's God's name? I am. And then when Jesus is arrested in the garden and steps forward and says, what? I am, they fell down because of the power of that name. This is the prologue. Look also just quickly at verse 2. Repentance, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The point of this verse is to remind the people that their deliverance for physical salvation was entirely based on God and his work. They were taken, this is important, from Egypt. Why? Where do you, where's repentance in this verse? What did the people constantly tell Moses? Take us back where? To Egypt. He says, no, you need to turn from that. That's the word for repentance. Let that go. This is your new life with God. And then in verses 3 to 17 is what we'll look at over and over. It's just submission. Another element of salvation, submission, obeying the will of God. Let's say it again. The Ten Commandments were not a way to get salvation. They were a way to be sanctified. They were a way to live out salvation that had already been commanded, already been accomplished. We're going to dive into this in more detail, but can we just have a little curious fun with this for a second? Why ten? I mean, there's 600 and change, 630 uh, commandments or, or laws in the Old Testament. Why these ten there's been a lot of fun suggestions. Some of the Jewish, early Jewish uh, rabbis said there were 10 because you had 10 fingers. And people would laugh at that. But you know what? There's actually something kind of interesting about that. Is you could remember there were 10 things I needed to remember for the Lord. He could have got I me. Mean, there's a lot more than 10 commandments of the Lord, right? You just read Exodus 20 through 24. There's a lot more than 10 commandments. Memorization. Easy to memorize. Simple. Shorthand. Remember, the Israelites did not have nice leather-bound Bibles. They depended on oral transmittance of the law and the will of God. We don't know exactly why there were ten. Here's another question. Why two tablets? This might be a little clearer. Why two tablets? Now, um, there's been much speculation over the curious fact that there were two tablets. Tradition reflected in Jewish art puts five commandments on each of the two tablets. Now, such is the case in the 13th century Spanish Illuminate Bible manuscripts, by the way. However, such an arrangement would have resulted in a strange imbalance if you put five on one side and five on the other. If you divide the commandments into one through five and six through ten and write them on two places, then one tablet would have 146 Hebrew words and the other tablet would have only 26. So it didn't make sense to do five and five, logically. Uh, by the way, a footnote, the Palestinian Talmud has a different tradition that more resembles the ancient Near Eastern customs that I think probably informs our understanding better. And that was there were two tablets in direct reflection to ancient Near Eastern contracts. Most likely, and the view that I lean toward, is that there were two tablets that contained all ten commandments. When you entered into a contract, you had a contract that was written on a tablet for you and a contract written on a tablet for someone you entered into that promise, that covenant with. What I think is so precious about that idea is in the end, both tablets end up in the ark. The tablet was intended to be your commitment to keeping that contract. And it's almost as if God says, you can't do it. I'll keep both. We have no way of knowing that for sure, but it seems odd. And if you were going to divide it up into two sections, it probably should be one through four and six through ten. One through four deal with God. Six through ten deals with horizontal relationships with people. Just some curious um, kind of trivia. Well, I, uh, 
We're going to talk more about this, but the, the, the Ten Commandments, and this is the last thing we'll, we'll, we'll try to cover tonight. The Ten Commandments are really akin to, to our Bill of Rights. Different than our Bill of Rights, though, in this. The Bill of Rights in the United States of America are intended to protect and to promote your rights. Every one of the Ten Commandments, however, are intended for you to protect God's rights and the rights of others. It's a manual on dying to self. First commandment is to honor God's right to allegiance, exclusive allegiance. The second, God's right to the definition of his image, no idols. The third, God's right to honor and respect. The fourth, God's right to our lives, that's the Sabbath. You can also say that that fourth one doubles with the Sabbath with us, the right to humane employment. Give them a day off. Obey your parents, the right for parental respect, that your parents are respected. Don't kill, don't murder, the right for other people to have life. Don't commit adultery, the right of others for pure marriage. Don't steal, the right of others to personal property. Don't speak ill in a bad testimony of someone else, the right to others to an honest reputation, to an honest reputation, and don't covet others people's rights for security. When we study the Ten Commandments, we're studying what Jesus meant when he said, learn to die the self. And that will be more and more clear as we go through that. The Ten Commandments are intended to have two, two directions. The first four predominantly are our vertical in relationship with God. They deal with God and his ownership of us. And the last six, which includes the fourth, the Sabbath does both things. It has a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. Those are intended for us to make sure that everyone's life around us is better because they know us. It's really remarkable. All of these commandments, either in principle or explicitly, are repeated in the New Testament, and I know what you're thinking. Hang on, Rick. What about the Sabbath? We'll talk about that when we get to the fourth commandment. But the hint right now is you got to read Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 talks about the Sabbath, but by the time you get to Hebrews 4, God has said the Sabbath is going to represent something else, not a day off, but the time when we'll ultimately rest where? In heaven. There's a progression that we'll talk about in the Sabbath. And different, the, the commandment to honor the Sabbath is different in Exodus 20 than it is in Deuteronomy 5. It's different in Psalm 95 than it is in Hebrews 4. And there's a progression of God saying the Sabbath means something to the Jew who had a six-day work week and took a day off to give his, his animals and his friends who worked for him a day off. But now, representing God's rest and representing our rest, it will end up representing our, this is what Hebrews 4 tells us, our eternal rest in heaven. And the idea is you work six weeks and take a day off. And the idea now is you work for the Lord your whole life and your day off is called heaven. Very remarkable progression in the explanation of God regarding the Sabbath. So what's the takeaway? Takeaway is, Ten Commandments are interesting. They're important. Do you know them? Will you memorize them? 
Have fun tonight. Don't be embarrassed. Have fun. Drive home and say, how many of the Ten Commandments can we list as a family, as a couple together? Oh, you may get most of them. Uh, but do you know them even in order? The order is significant. It's not random. And lest any of us think, going back to that an illustration may go, that the Ten Commandments belong in the court system, have you read the First Commandment? Have you really read the first commandment? Is that possible for a state to actually do? The answer is no. It's talking about exclusive allegiance to God. Salvation before the God of the Bible. Well, if you can't get past the first one, I don't know what you're going to do with the rest of it. I am so happy that... Uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic is anchored in the Ten Commandments and we learn so much of our law that's rooted in that. I think we should have laws that are built and flow out of these and other Old Testament principles. The greatest problem and the greatest challenge, though, rests and relies on the fact that in Exodus chapter 20, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. How can anyone in our day but a Christian believe and say that when that God listed and referenced in Exodus 20 verse 3 is Jesus Christ incarnate? This isn't for political tug of war. Let's erect a billboard in our house to the Ten Commandments. I'm not interested in fighting schools and courts. I'd rather tell them that they can be saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ and this is how you can be sanctified. We can talk about how our laws are rooted in Judeo-Christian ethics. That's fine. But before we start fighting the battles about how important the Ten Commandments are out there, let's win the battle for how important the ten words of God to Moses are in here. The God who gave the Ten Commandments is, is Jesus Christ. He didn't just send Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? That's God the Father in the Old Testament. God the Son's the nice guy in the New Testament. You ever find yourself slipping into that? This, we'll end up getting there and referencing Exodus 33 and 34. This is I believe the second person of the Trinity who walked by and gave Moses a glimpse of his afterglow. How do we know that's the second person? Because it's the only person of the Trinity that any man was able, ever able to see and live. God said, if you see me in my full blazing glory, you cannot live. So these are theophanies. Maybe you've heard that term in the Old Testament. Any encounter with God is no doubt the second person of the Trinity. Do not allow your heart to divorce Jesus from God in the Old Testament. Don't trifurcate, cut up in three parts the Trinity. God is God. As we'll see in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, how many gods are there? One. He is one and there is no other. So that's just an introduction. So in our next study, we're going to look at the first commandment. And can I just give you a head start? It's brutal. It is so wonderfully convicting to see that he requires exclusive allegiance. He is 
horrifically, traumatically jealous of owning our entire affections. And that's the point of the first commandment. Let me just say again, if, uh, if uh, this is a little foreign to you, Jesus Christ is available to be believed in. The God of the Old Testament is our Savior who's come, who's lived a perfect life to give us access to God and to die, to raise us from our death through his own resurrection and give us hope in heaven. If you want to talk about that with me or any of our staff or any of the people around you would even be better, please don't leave without asking that question because there are answers to be had. Let's pray together. I imagine the scene, Father, of the smoke that was on the mountain. The phenomenon of thunder and lightning. I know how terrified I can be in the middle of a thunderstorm. That's a local weather system. It's hard to imagine the Creator speaking in thunder with the earth shaking. Protect us from having a frivolous, small view of you, Lord. Protect us from seeing these ten words that you gave Moses as a way that we can please you and go to heaven. Instead, teach us that to give our lives to Christ is to live this kind of life. Promoting and protecting your rights. Promoting and protecting the rights of others. We're going to begin this study, and it's going to take us a little time to go through. Lord, keep us on the way of proper hermeneutics to rightfully discern our time and theirs, and yet to understand your heart demonstrated in your requirements. Thank you for your requirements. Lord, thank you that you've told us who you are and what you expect, and we're not groping for the light switch in the dark. Keep our eyes open to look for and see your glory. Beholden, in the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>